We've been in a series the last uh, few weeks now, this is, this is week three, talking about forgiveness. And the kind of key text that we've been looking at comes out of Matthew's gospel, and it's that moment when Peter comes to Jesus and says, how many times must I forgive when someone sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus comes back, no, not seven times, but 77 times. And it seems that part of what Peter has been able to discern about this life is that there will be trouble. It seems, though, that for Peter, what he has discerned is that trouble is primarily other people, that he's, he's preparing himself to be someone who is primarily sinned against. How many times do I have to forgive implies people are going to do wrong to me. That's the center. That's the space from which Peter is operating. What it doesn't acknowledge, though, is that maybe even more than being people who forgive, we are going to be people who need forgiveness. More than we're people who are sinned against, we are people who are going to time and time and time again fall into sin and have to have that dealt with in our lives. Part of the danger, I think, when we think about the world primarily in terms of a place where we are sinned against is that so long as that is your primary posture, so long as you're operating in the world, assuming and knowing that you are going to be someone who has to forgive, it places you consistently in the position of a victim. Now hear me, like there are people who are very real victims of very real wrongs. But again, when our primary posture is that we are people who are victims, someone to whom the world happens to more than we're happening to the world, we become victims. And the thing about victimhood, the thing about always placing ourselves in that position of a victim, is that we primarily want to see revenge. That's how we operate in the world. We are people who want to see revenge rather than being people who are compassionate, rather than being people who are merciful. I think we see this all over, primarily in our politics right now, that we are mostly people who are reacting to the wrongs that have been done to us without ever taking any account for our role, for the things that we've done or left undone. And so we operate primarily as victims. I told you a story last week of my friend Robbie, who her son uh, was in the Israeli army and was killed by a Palestinian sniper. And when the officers showed up at her door to give her that news, the first thing she said was, no one is allowed to be killed in my son David's name, which is basically a way of saying, you don't get to go out and seek revenge for David. She's operating from a place where she realizes that reacting in that way, responding from a place of victimhood, seeking revenge, just perpetuates this cycle of violence. And she's trying actively to disrupt it, trying to instead embody compassion and mercy 
Robbie's gone on to do a lot of really incredible work uh, in peacemaking between Israel families and Palestinian families. She's started uh, a group of bereaved parents, both on the Palestinian side and on the Israeli side, that meet together working through that grief, trying to figure out how can we act again in ways that disrupt cycles of revenge and violence. But it begins with realizing I'm not primarily a victim. She says, I'm a victor. I'm someone who has overcome the wrongs that have been done to me so that I can respond from a place of wholeness, that I can respond from a place of compassion. And this is one of the dangers that we face, that by not acknowledging our sin, our stuff, our capacity to wound other people, if we don't at least acknowledge it, we refuse to make room for things like forgiveness, for things like reconciliation. Bonhoeffer, who we've talked about these past couple of weeks, he says this about one of the dangers of ignoring sin, both in our own lives and in our communities. He says, the pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. (laughs) Everybody, he says, must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners, he says. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone in our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. When we resist our calling to acknowledge our sin, the invitation to deal with the stuff going on in our lives, one of the things that it sets us up for is this conspiracy of silence about the wrongs in the world, about the ongoing presence of sin in our personal life and in our communal life. And when sin is discussed, whenever we do talk about this messy business of sin and wounding one another, wronging one another, when we talk about it, it always seems to be the kind of infuriating trespass that other people do. It's always the sin of those people and how we overcome the wrongs they do to us. Sin is what other people commit, not the stuff that we're dealing with in our own lives. The truth is, we don't know what to make of our own sin because we've not rightly thought through how we, how we deal with it, how we handle it. Week after week here at Sanctuary, we invite all of you to participate in this general confession, most merciful God. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what? What we have done and left undone. We talk about it in these terms, but oftentimes these terms, they're so vague and they're so general that we don't know what to make of the specificity of sin in our life. Of course, we acknowledge that in that moment when one of our priests or a bishop stands in front of us and proclaims the absolution, are you forgiven? 
Yes, you are absolutely forgiven. But hasn't this lack of acknowledgement of our own personal stuff with specificity, hasn't confession in that way also been problematic? Yes, we've seen the church deal with this in all kinds of just bonkers ways. Just crazy, crazy things that we've done to one another. (laughs) Think about this, there was a time in the church's history when your ability to be reconciled back to the community of faith after a mortal sin oftentimes would take years of practice, years of you going through confession and absolution and making penitence to be reconciled back to the community of faith so that this is what their services would look like. They would gather together just like we are right now. They would engage in worship just like we've done. They would hear reading of the text just like we've done. And when they come to that moment, of inviting everyone to the table, the people who are still in process of making their penitence are told to leave the assembly. Not permitted to come and to receive the sacrament of the bread and the wine. They're told you have to go out. And one of the things that they would do is they would wait at the doors and then when the community is dismissed to go and love love and serve the Lord, They're asking for people's prayers and petitions. Pray for me that I might be reconciled back to the faithful. Crazy things that we've done to one another. At other times when the act of a a personal confession that you're making uh, to a priest, when when this practice ticks up, one of the things that gets distributed is a manual for priests that lists all these different kinds of sins. (laughs) So that as people come and make their confession to you, you can open your little book, find the sin on the page and find the appropriate penitence. (laughs) Sometimes this got wrapped up in, in monetary stuff, right? So if you paid enough money or if you worked off like a money equivalent of a certain sin, that thing could finally be forgiven and reconciled. In some cases, because your penitence is about what you are doing, there were people who thought, well, I bet I can hire this work out. (laughs) So they would pay other people to do their work of penitence for them. Very, very problematic. One of the things that helps address these problems is what we know as the Reformation. And we're glad the Reformation happened, but we also shouldn't have any kind of funny ideas about what the Reformation did and did not accomplish or what they were trying to do. When we talk about the reformers, talk about somebody like Luther, the great reformer, we have this idea that he was trying to move the church in a new direction, trying to get us unstuck and moving toward this new idea that he had. That's not what Luther was doing. To reform is to return back to a kind of faithfulness that we've deviated from. So even Luther, the great reformer, when he thought about confession, about owning our stuff in private with specificity to a priest, he maintained that confession is a sacrament. Not only is it a sacrament, he called it the third sacrament, Eucharist, baptism, and confession. And he said, what's more, is that confession is 
explicitly tied to your baptism, that for you to engage in this practice of owning your stuff is really about you remembering who you are, is really about you remembering that you, before anything else, are the baptized. Your identity is that you are the baptized. You are people who have joined Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We see this in Romans 6, that all of our Christian life happens in the life of Christ. That's what takes place in our baptism. That's what we're going to be celebrating next Sunday morning when we baptize. I think we have five or six people they are going to be baptized. We are saying they are now found in the life of Christ. And so when we sin, when we deviate from that and we come to confession, what we're saying is I'm returning to my baptism. Luther also had a couple other funny ideas when it came to sin and confession. He famously said, maybe you're aware of this, sin boldly. <laughs> sin boldly, Luther says. Now, he doesn't mean what you think he means. Because remember, for Luther, to sin is directly connected to confessing, which is directly connected to your baptism. So he says sin is an inevitable part of your life. Until the day you die, you are going to wrestle with sin in your life. So own it, is what Luther is saying. Acknowledge it, talk about it, confess it so that you can be forgiven, so that you can receive absolution, so that you can live your life free from sin. That's what Paul's talking about when he talks about the power of sin in our life, when he talks about sin and our sin nature. He's not saying that there's just these individual things that we're just gonna be prone to doing. He's saying sin no longer has power over you. Why? Because you can be forgiven. That's what Paul's talking about. So again, we come back to this idea of our general confession. And I would say for most of us, this is enough. Participating in that general confession week to week is enough. Remember what we said on the first week of this little series about practicing confession, about going to confession. The Anglican motto is this, all may, some should, none must. All may, some should, but none must. This is not... This is not a legalism thing. If you never choose to go to confession, <laughs> we're not suggesting that you're not receiving forgiveness. You are forgiven. But there are some of you that you get stuck in your stuff. And part of what you need is that practice of sitting down with a priest, owning your stuff, and hearing those words, you're forgiven. Let's talk a little bit about what is and isn't happening there. Again, for some of us, that general confession is enough. I think one of the dangers, though, is that because it is a corporate prayer, its primary role is articulating the failings of the community as the community. And to be sure, there are ways that we've participated in that. There is that kind of individual responsibility that we have to own in the ways that we have failed to be the people of God as the people of God. 
If we're honest, though, that confession, it makes very little claim on us individually. And over time, one of the dangers is that it loses its force. The more that we repeat something, right, the more it just becomes kind of rote. We can do anything rote. This is why we always try to pause and invite you to bring something to mind that's weighing on you. Something from this week that you know you ought to have done or that you did and you shouldn't have done. Maybe some harsh word that you used to, or way in which you spoke to your kids. That impatience that rises up in you when you're just trying to get out the door. That way that that person always does this or never does this and we generalize people's activity. We invite you to bring those things to mind so that the corporate expression of confession and absolution can somehow become specific for us. And to be sure, that absolution, that moment when we proclaim, God have mercy on you and forgive all your sins, keep you in eternal life, it counts. That absolution covers your stuff, whatever you might be bringing to that moment. But the, the, the danger, I think, again, is the lack of specificity. We don't know truly what's going on in our hearts. There's not that much time given for self-examination, for a kind of inner searching of our hearts and our souls dealing with what's going on inside of us. I think specificity matters when it comes to issues of sin. I um, was on a trip a couple of years ago with an individual, his name's uh, Dr. Michael Battle. He's a priest, professor, and one of his good friends was Desmond Tutu. And over the course of his life, I mean, uh, Bishop Tutu like baptized his kids. He did their wedding. But one of the things that he was invited to experience was the moment of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee that was dealing in post-apartheid South Africa with how does all of this get flushed out? What does it mean now to live as a people who have had those kinds of divisions? And in that Truth and Reconciliation Committee, what ended up happening is there had to be named with specificity the kind of sins they had committed against one another. They had to own their racism by name, confess it by name, and it had to be forgiven by name. My friend, Dr. Battle, he suggested this is part of the reason why even though Apartheid South Africa was not that long ago. They've made leaps and bounds in reconciling as a nation compared to the United States. Because we've never said with specificity, we've never named with specificity the, the evils of slavery, the evils of racism. We've skirted around it and said a lot of really ridiculous things about that experience. I saw this video this week, this is me ranting, and this is my confession, so Father Brent, you'll come absolve me later. <clears throat> saw this pastor just in the last couple of weeks who's saying, 
that, yeah, slavery was bad, and it wasn't very nice of us, but, you know, one of the things that it allowed us to do was bring people who wouldn't have heard the gospel, and we got to preach the gospel to them so that now they're in, they're in heaven because their souls were saved. We've said a lot of really stupid things. This is why specificity matters. We can tell the truth about ourselves, about the world that we live in. We can tell the truth because the truth is the thing that God can deal with. We've said this time and time again here, these words from Metropolitan Anthony Bloom, where he says, God can save the sinner that you are, but not the saint that you pretend to be. When we fail to acknowledge those things that we've done and left undone with specificity, we're refusing to let God touch those parts of our lives, those broken parts of us that deeply need God's healing. One of the ways that we think about this is a, a lady named Julia Grata. She says that in the same way a burning glass concentrates the rays of the sun to a single point, sacramental confession focuses contrition and absolution with searing intensity. That's a liberating experience. The truth is we say that we believe in mercy, but we rarely ever experience it. Forgiveness, both the giving of it and the receiving of it, it exists for most of us only in the realm of ideas, concepts. And there are some of us that are just so stuck in our stuff that we need the drama of the sacrament to exteriorize what we're feeling. We can't just conceptually think about forgiveness and think about mercy and think about compassion. We have to actually put ourselves in a position to receive it, to hear it out loud, to have another human being who's just heard the worst of who we are look us in the eyes and say, you are forgiven. Now, I know we have a lot of weird ideas about this too because we've experienced some of the abuses of things like confession and, and absolution. Here's what's happening and what's not happening. What's not happening is that the priest is not giving you forgiveness, okay? The priest is not the one who is somehow absolving you of your sin and making everything right between you and God. That's not what's happening, okay? Affirmation, yes, that's not what's happening. A priest is there as a witness. They're there to bear witness to the work of God happening to you. That's what we trust when we talk about sacraments. Most, most of the time we think about these kinds of activities, whether it's, whether it's baptism, whether it's something like confession, as something that we are primarily doing some action that we're participating in, some commitment that we are making before God. The truth is, all of the sacraments are God's commitments to us. You don't receive absolution because you feel bad enough or because you've finally been brave enough to talk about your stuff. 
you receive forgiveness because God is freely giving it to you. But your action in confession is for your healing. Any good therapist would tell you that when there's stuff happening inside of you, occupying space inside of you, and you haven't given it language, you've held it in, you don't know how to talk about it, that thing that's just ravaging your soul and your heart and your mind, one of the best things you can do is to just name it. Just speak it out loud. If you don't know how to say it or you're afraid of somebody hearing you, write it down. Get a pen and a piece of paper and say, this is awful and this is what I'm dealing with. And there's something about that movement from your heart or from your mind to a page or just out into nothingness that frees you up. It it provides some movement and some space in you to hear a different kind of word to hear the kind of grace and compassion and mercy that's all wrapped up in you being forgiven. It it frees you from the power of that thing by just naming it. Confession as a definition is something that happens to God in the presence of a priest. St. Ambrose, he talks about this again and again, this this needing to experience the drama of the sacrament. And he says this about it. You have shown yourself to me face to face, O Christ. I meet you in your sacraments. That's what we hope for. That's what we long for, that all of the sacraments are an encounter with Christ. I was having a conversation just this week with someone who's struggling with talking about the spirit. And to be sure, like, man, what are we talking about when we talk about the spirit? It blows where it pleases. We don't know. We can't really get our minds around what's happening when we talk about the spirit. And I think for most of us, our experiences with the spirit have been primarily things coming out of like charismatic traditions, Pentecostal traditions, and it makes the spirit just sound unruly, unpredictable. We don't know how to get our hands on it. And so we just do things with a kind of passion or just long enough to try and work up the spirit in our midst, right? The spirit's not that unpredictable. The church has said the spirit is present when we gather, whether we feel it or not, but specifically, the Spirit is present in the sacraments. The Spirit is acting, working in the sacraments, making Christ present to us so that every time we come to the table and we ask the Spirit to descend on these gifts, to make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that's a prayer that we don't have to hope or wonder if it's being answered. The Spirit does it. The Spirit makes it so. In baptism, we don't have to wonder if if God is making us a new creation, if it really took this time. The Spirit makes it so. In confession, we don't have to have any kind of ambiguity about am I forgiven, am I not forgiven, because the Spirit makes it so. 
We don't have to wonder about where the, spirit of, uh, the, the activity of the Spirit is. Every time we come to the sacraments, the Spirit is at work making Christ present to us. So then that moment of confession, the priest is there again to just bear witness. We're there as a faithful witness to what God is doing to you. Our job as people who come to confession is to do that inner work that we're very uncomfortable with so that we can communicate what it is we're confessing, not in general terms, not in a way that's, that's fuzzy, but in a way that is painstakingly specific. Doing that difficult work of finding words to name what we have done or what we've left undone. So the absolution then is just more of that witnessing. It's an objective, authoritative assurance of God's forgiveness. It's announced to us by a voice that's not our own as I lose mine. Sometimes our idea of forgiveness is just that voice in our head saying, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, everything's okay. But know that it can come from outside of you. There can be a voice, a voice that has been given authority to speak for Christ and for Christ's church who can remind you from outside of yourself, you're forgiven. Sin can make us excruciatingly lonely. Public sins, they estrange us from our neighbors. They keep our neighbors at arm's length. The personal stuff, that hidden stuff, it hides us away from our communities, estranges us from the people that God has called us to live our lives with. And even though confession requires privacy, it is a private moment. And let me say this, the grace that priests pray for is, is the grace to forget. It can be really, really difficult and challenging to say what you have done and left undone to another human being. But know this, specifically within our diocese, but in the broader tradition, one of the only things that we can get like really, really busted for is breaking that seal of confession. We take it seriously. Under the stole is how we talk about it. So that when you're sitting there, it's a place of safety and security, of non-judgment. Because it's only in that kind of space that we can rightly receive and hear those words, Almighty God, have mercy on you and forgive you. So even though it requires privacy, because you don't want all your stuff out there with everybody, in confession, what we say is that the whole church is present. The whole church is present in that moment of confession. Why? Because where two or three are gathered together, 
you sitting down with a priest or bishop and confessing your sin meets the smallest quorum of the church gathered. And that's good news because it means that your confession and your absolution isn't just about you. Reconciliation is a corporate action because sin affects the unity of the body. Again, sin keeps us estranged from our neighbors and from ourselves. We need you to be whole so that we can be the body of Christ. Reconciliation with God and reconciliation with the community of faith are all bound up in one another. Now let me say a couple of things and I'll be done. This is, <clears throat> this is not for when you've got everything sorted out. Sometimes I think that we think about, well, I need to go to confession after I've kind of got everything figured out so that I can just move on <laughs> into the rest of my life. That's not what this is for. Sometimes you find yourself in a place where you are just all bound up and you don't know what to think or what to do. And you think, I've got to get all this sorted out and then I'll go make confession. No, confession is for the very beginning of the process. Confession is for that moment when you're looking at the landscape of your life and saying, this is all a total disaster. So I need to hear those words of forgiveness. Why? So that I can do all of that other work of sorting this stuff out, but I can do it without shame. I can do it without judgment. I can do it from a place of freedom. That's why we begin in those moments with confession. Sometimes the best time for you to sit down and own your stuff is at the very beginning of the mess. Now listen, maybe the general confession is good for you, but maybe you're stuck on some things that you just can't get over. Those same pitfalls you just keep falling into again and again and again. Know this. Confession is not always a 911 thing. You don't have to wait until that moment when your life is falling apart to go to confession. Confession is part of the day-to-day -day ministry of the church. This is why when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're asking for daily bread. Daily we're asking, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Friends, this is one of the things we're hoping to make part of our regular rhythm here at Sanctuary. And we've been on quite a journey over the last 15, almost 20 years. And I think sacramentally we understand the value of the Eucharist. We understand the value of baptism. We participate in marrying people in our community. We've got a wedding coming up on Halloween. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're okay with all of these sacraments, but confession, I think, has been kind of the last great frontier for us. And it can be scary, to be sure, but we don't have to be afraid of it. It's something that's meant for our liberation and for our freedom so that we can move about in the world in the way that God imagines us. I'll tell you a quick story and then be done. 
my friend. Uh, a lot of you know him, so I'll save him some embarrassment. The first time they ever gave the opportunity for confession for their church, he thought, man, we're going to open the doors and there's not going to be anybody here. Nobody's going to come for this because it's just, it's just too gnarly. It's just too weird. And they opened the doors and they had a line outside of their church of people in their community who were there to make their confession. And so all day he sat and he listened and he listened and he listened and he announced and proclaimed forgiveness and absolution to person after person after person. He gets home and his wife looks at him and she goes, I know you can't talk about it, but how did it go? And he looked at his wife and he said, honey, everyone in our church is going to hell. <laughs> and he said, including me. <laughs> Here's what I love about this, this moment, about this sacrament. This is not your priest just trying to get you to come and talk about your stuff. There is a grace to this moment. I think for a lot of us, I don't have time for this, I didn't mean to go into this either. For a lot of us, I think we've had this experience of, of whatever you want to call it, deconstructing, going through some kind of phase where we're rethinking everything that we believe. And here's what I think has happened to a lot of us is that a lot of us in this community specifically, we have heard those words that Lazarus heard, come forth. We've heard those words of, I can, I can trust being back a part of a faith community. Even if I'm a little uncomfortable, even if I don't have all of this stuff figured out, we've heard those words from Jesus and we've trusted them to come forth. You're here. You've chosen to be here, to be present to one another, to be present before God. But here's where I think a lot of us still are. Just like Lazarus, we're still wrapped up in all of our death clothes. So we're still a little hesitant <laughs> about being a part of the world again, being a part of the world that Jesus invites us to step back into. We're a little nervous about it. And here's what I think confession offers us, a chance to just rip off all those old death clothes and put on the garments that Jesus is, is holding and waiting for you. Those garments of life and joy and freedom and forgiveness and liberation so that you can move about in the world as a person who can be compassionate and a person who can be merciful. That's what I think confession offers us. So you'll hear about it. We're gonna open the doors Sunday mornings a little early, give you an opportunity to come and make your confession. Some of you will and some of you won't, that's okay. That's okay. But just know that we are a sacramental people who are trying our best to live out the forgiveness that God offers to us. Amen.